Good morning, Redeemer Church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And what a privilege to open God's word together. Let's ask for God's help as we do that. Father God, thank you for the privilege it is to gather with the family of God and to sing worship songs and to worship through the word. Father, we trust that you have spoken to us in this book and that you have something that you want to say to us today through your word. So pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see, that we would have hearts that are open to what you would communicate to us, that as we sit under your word, we would have a disposition that desires to know, to understand, and to obey, and that we would go out from here changed even more into your image as your people who represent you in this world. So in all these things, Father, we pray for your grace, we pray for your help, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have a question for you. Do you ever wish the world were different? Do you ever look at the news, hear about people being shot in the streets and women and children being kidnapped and say, I wish the world were different? Do you ever just go about your life and look around your neighborhood and look at all the houses and the flats and the people who live in them or maybe go around your workplace and just observe your fellow workers or maybe go to the mall and see crowds of people gathered together and just think to yourself, these people are lost. These people are without the gospel. These people need Jesus Christ. Do you ever think to yourself, man, I, I, I wish I could do something, but then do you ever just say, oh man, but there's just so much toil and turmoil in my own heart. I'm just trying to get my own act together. How could I possibly be of help to somebody else? And in all of those things, we see just the effects of sin and the effects of fallenness and the effects of brokenness and, and the world not being the way that God designed it to be. And I wish it weren't like that. I wish it were different. I bet you do too. So what do we do about that? What do I do? What do you do? How can we as Redeemer Church and the people of Redeemer Church, how can we change the world? Because that's what we want, right? We don't want to just accept it the way it is, just to say, well, this, this is the state of things. Nothing really we can do about it. But we want to make a difference. We want to bring change. And so how would Jesus have us live? And how would he have us be? And how would he have us speak so that change happens? So that darkness is pushed back? So that people turn from darkness to light and glorify the God who is in heaven? How can that happen? Well, in our text, Matthew 5, 1 to 16, Jesus is going to tell us how to change the world. Of course, these verses that we're looking at today, this is just the beginning of what in Matthew's gospel is a much larger sermon. The Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, and there's a lot in there we won't see today. Pastor Dave preached all the way through that, a long series a few years ago, so look those sermons up. But I think these verses, 5, 1 to 16, are by themselves kind of a little sermon, if you will. This is like a mini-sermon, 
that sets the agenda for everything that's going to follow in that larger Sermon on the Mount in 5, 1 through 16. Now, you've all been in church a few years, right? Most of you, some of you are new, but most of you, I I see some uh, old familiar faces and gray hairs and all that. So you've been around for a while and you've heard a few sermons and we've all heard the kind of sermon that has, here's two points for you today or here's three points for you today. And, you know, at the seminary, we're training pastors and church planters at GTS. Uh, Sometimes I get to teach the preaching class and I tell these guys who are learning how to preach, I say, hey, you maybe want to have like maximum three points because you get beyond that and it gets very confusing and disjointed. But then we read the Bible and we see here's Jesus preaching a sermon and it appears from what we're going to see that he has like nine points in his sermon. And so all we're going to try to do today is just not get too fancy and make up our own structure, but just use the one that he already gave us. So it's a nine-point sermon, and then there's two points of application that follow that. And with all that, we're asking this question, with whom does God change the world? So look at the text with me. Look at verse 3. Uh, so Jesus has gathered these disciples around. There they are. They're up on the mountain. He, they're, they're all in front of him. He starts teaching. And the first word, look at verse 3. The first word is blessed. Blessed. Blessed is the key word in our section of Scripture, right? Because if you keep reading the next verses, you see the same word, blessed, begins each of the next nine sentences. And that's where we get the name for this section of Scripture. We call it the Beatitudes which just comes from a Latin word, which means to bless. And if we looked at the original language in Greek, that same word is makarios. And so if you've ever known anybody named makaria, that's where that comes from. I don't know if there's anyone here of that description. But this word blessed, the word just means it it, it has to do with what's going on inside you. It has to do with being in a state of good fortune, they say, of living a life of satisfaction. It means to be happy. And so how can you change the world? Well, the first observation we can make is just to say, well, first of all, Jesus' answer to that question is much less about your intelligence or about your skills, but what Jesus is homing in on is your external demeanor that flows out of your internal disposition. You are, in a word, happy. You're happy. He says you are happy, and he says it nine times in a row. So why are Jesus' disciples, why are those who follow Jesus happy? Well, nine reasons these verses give us. First of all, you're happy because you bring nothing to God. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right there is the good news of the gospel. Because all false religion hasn't come in the goal of accumulating spiritual wealth. You have to be on the treadmill of doing good deeds, of keeping the law, of following the rules, and you just keep doing all that. You keep doing, keep doing, keep doing, and eventually you gather up all that record and all those good works, and you show them to God and say, look, at, here it is, God. Here's all that I've done. Here's all of my spiritual wealth. But see, the, you can never do enough. That doesn't work because one sin is enough to condemn you before God's perfect righteousness. And so therefore that quest to do enough through works of religion, it inevitably leads to pride because you falsely think you're doing it or it leads to misery because you know you're not doing it. 
But the good news of the gospel, this upside-down reality, is that salvation comes not by gaining spiritual wealth, but by declaring spiritual bankruptcy and saying, I can't do it, by saying my good works can never be enough, that only the perfect Son of God dying in my place can forgive my sin. It's not the healthy who need a physician, Jesus said, but the sick. And who here is sick? All of us. All of us, you're sick, but you need a physician and you have a physician. So when you cry out to Jesus and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, when you turn to that physician in repentance, yours, it says, is the kingdom of heaven. You're happy because you bring nothing to God. Happy are the poor in spirit. He goes on. You're happy, secondly, because your grief will end. Your grief will end. So imagine you're a basketball fan. And imagine in front of you is the most important basketball game of the year. And your team has to win this game or else you're going to be eliminated. You're going to go home for the season. And it's the last minute of the game. The clock is ticking away. And the scoreboard shows that your team is losing by 50 points. And here you are cheering for the team and you're saying, yay, we're going to win. We're the champions. What would we say about you if you were doing that? Now, if the score was closer, if it was like you're down by five points, we'd say, okay, that's good. You're being hopeful. You're being optimistic. But if you're down by 50 points with one minute to play, we say, you're crazy. You don't understand the game. You're, 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 you're a fool to be cheering in that situation. And some people say that Christians are foolish. They say to have a posture of happiness towards the world is in denial about the real state of the world that we're just putting on a fake Pollyanna smile while the world is falling apart all around us. Why would we do that? Well, one reason is because look what Jesus says in verse four. He says, blessed, that is, happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Friends, Jesus is not naive. Jesus is not in denial. He is not toxically happy. He, of all people, knows how corrupted the world is. Jesus, of all people, knows the suffering of disease and of loss and of sin. So if we follow him as his people, Jesus' people, we do mourn and we do weep. And we do weep with those who weep. The Christians ought to be the most realistic people in the world because we have a theology that explains the brokenness we see in the world around us. Everyone in the world is in rebellion against God. And in our rebellion against God, this world is not the place it was supposed to be. So we mourn. But Christians mourn with hope. We even weep, you might say, with happiness. Because as we weep, we are anticipating that day in the presence of the Lamb when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so we're happy because by faith we know that we will be comforted. Now you may have been taught at some point along the way that there's a difference between happiness and joy. Some people have said this. And that on the one hand, happiness 
is something that's kind of worldly and based on your circumstances and is sort of less good. But then joy, on the other hand, this is more godly and this is more spiritual. And this joy is based, you know, on eternal realities and not your temporary circumstances. And so happiness is pretty good, but joy is really good. And so if you make this distinction between the two, you can kind of picture some, you know, sort of like glum-faced, miserable Christian that is really kind of hostile towards the world around them, but they're sitting here saying, well, I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. And it's, you know, deep, deep down in my heart. I can't, you can't see it, but it's there, down there, somewhere. But scripture doesn't teach that happiness and joy are two different things. There's nowhere in the Bible that it teaches that happiness and joy are two different things. And if it did, we would expect that right here in this passage, talking about mourning, that Jesus would be saying, okay, you can have joy even when you mourn, but surely you can't have happiness while you're mourning, but that's not what it says. He says, you're happy. And he says it nine times. So people who are making this allowance to say, I can be, I can be joyful but not happy, they're less radical than Jesus is. Because Jesus' way is radical. Jesus' way is different. His way is upside down. In his kingdom, the sad are happy. And, and we could say even more, point three, you're happy because you're not in control. Verse five says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now think about meek. What is meek? You think about what's the opposite of meek. The opposite of meek is someone who's a control freak who's trying to be in charge, who's trying to make the world their own little kingdom, and here's their agenda, and here's their plan, and here's their schedule, and everything has to be in line with that, and any kind of deviation from that plan is going to make them angry or f- frustrated or discouraged or depressed. That's, that's the opposite of meek. But then meekness, what's that? Meekness is the recognition that I'm not in control here. I can't make the world the way I want it to be because God is the one who's in control. I'm not independent and powerful. I'm dependent. I'm powerless. I'm dependent on God's plans and God's providence for every breath. And yes, the world is going to change. The the Bible tells us that all ultimately will come under the dominion of Christ as Lord, but that change isn't going to happen because I force it to happen, but because the Lord does it. And so you and me, we're all just servants. We're just messengers. And in that role, you can be meek. And in that meekness, Jesus says, you'll find happiness. So Jesus has shown us first that you're happy because you bring nothing to God. Secondly, because you're grieful. And third, you're happy because you're not in control. But then fourth, Jesus says, you're happy because you want what you need. What you most need in the world is what you want. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Think of hungering and thirsting. It's a vivid picture. It's like you went out dune bashing, way out in the desert in the empty corner, empty, you know, empty place in the desert, quarter, that's what I was trying to say. So you go out there in the desert, you're dune bashing, your four by four breaks down, and you're, you're dumb and you forgot to bring any water, and you're out there and it's hot and it's the desert, and you are thirsty. Your throat is dry. You're, 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 you feel like you're going to die because you just have to get a drink of water. That's the, 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 the picture 
that's being given to us here. And the verse is reminding us that everybody thirsts for something. Everybody hungers for something. And our hunger is often tied to our happiness for good or for ill because we have this sinful nature and it's thirsting for things. But what our sinful nature thirsts for are things that do not lead to happiness. Our sinful nature thirsts after sin, after the opportunity to indulge fleshly desires. Or maybe our sinful nature thirsts after more comforts, more possessions, more position. But happiness isn't there. Happiness isn't in those kinds of hungers because when we're hungering for the things of this world, two things might happen. One is you might obtain the thing that you hunger for and like so many before, you find out that, oh, it didn't make me happy. I'm still unhappy. Or on the other hand, if you're seeking happiness in the things of this world, you might never get the thing that you're hungering for and then always be unhappy because I don't have the thing that would make me happy. But Jesus is saying something different here. He's saying that the deepest longing of his people is for a right relationship with God and with others. That's true righteousness. That's the righteousness he's talking about here. And if that's our hunger, if our hunger is for a right relationship with God and with other people, that's a hunger that is going to lead to happiness because that's a hunger that God has promised to satisfy. So you're happy because you want what you need. Going on, number five, you're happy because you don't get what you deserve. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is, I committed the crime, but I didn't have to do the time. I was let go, I was set free, I was forgiven. But see, what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to live our lives in a way that keeps track. I'm keeping a record, whether in my mind or maybe on paper, of, of all you people. And I know what you've done for me and what you haven't done for me. And I know about your sins against me. And I know about the good things you've done. And, you know, I know what things I have to get back at you for. And I know what things, you know, you have to get back at me for. And we're just keeping track all the time of all the stuff, of all the good and all the bad. And see, when we are living our lives in a way that keep track of everybody's transgressions against us, we can't help but live in frustration. That is a path to unhappiness. But Jesus offers his disciples freedom from frustration. He offers them the happiness of not keeping track. We can treat people with mercy. We can be merciful. We can be forgiving because we expect that we will receive God's mercy, that our sins will be forgotten through the blood of Christ. So he goes on then, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, if you know anything about Judaism of Jesus' day, you know the Jews were very concerned with external purity, with ceremonial purity, with keeping the festivals, with keeping the laws, looking right on the outside. But in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, no, we've got to go deeper. We've got to go to the heart of the matter. He says we need a purity, not an external purity, but a purity of heart. We need a, we could say, a single-minded, undivided Loyalty to God, commitment to God that pervades every area of our life, that's pure in heart. It's saying that nothing is 
impure about it. Nothing is blemishing or contaminating our devotion to God. It's from the heart. We could say his point this way, number six. We could say you're happy because you know what's most important. So if, if my life is marked by hidden sin, by a life of hiding, of being in darkness, that's going to be a life of misery. I'm always worried if people are going to find out who I really am. But living in the light, living among God's people, not feeling the need to hide or to perform because we know that we are sinners, but that every sin is forgiven and atoned for by Jesus Christ, that's a life of freedom. That's the life of an unburdened conscience. That's the life of joy that sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You're happy because you know what's most important. But as we go on then to verse 9, look what it says. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We could say it this way, number 7. We could say you're happy because you're like God. Think about it like this. If I say to you, I wish the world were different, kind of a biblical, sort of an Old Testament way of saying that would be to say the world is lacking peace. It doesn't have shalom would be the Old Testament word. Now what that means is when we talk about peace in the Bible, we're not just talking about the end of fighting. Like sometimes we think if I have, you know, one army, the northern army and the southern army and they're fighting against each other then they stop fighting, that means peace. But peace is more than that in the Bible. Peace is not just the absence of war. It's the things being the way they should be. Everything being in their right position as God has designed it and God has created it. This verse is telling us that, that God is a peacemaker, that God is a maker of peace. And Jesus is saying that his disciples are those who are like God, looking for those places in the world where there's an absence of peace, an absence of shalom, that Jesus' disciples are trying to mend those areas of brokenness. They're, try, they're trying to put the world back together, if you will. And that can happen in so many different ways. On a, on a very small, personal, local level, we can make peace as we have opportunity in a temporal way by opposing injustice, by helping those who are hurting, but more than that, we can make peace in an eternal way by proclaiming the good news, as Isaiah says, that our God reigns, that's publishing peace, Isaiah 52 says. But the lesson here is that wherever you're at, you're sitting here in Dubai right now, you go home to Sharjah later on, or maybe you come from Delhi or from Manila or from Dallas, Texas, wherever you are in the world, this verse is telling us that the way to happiness for Jesus' followers is not in turning a blind eye to the brokenness of the world. The goal is not for us to close our eyes and say, yeah, the world's, you know, like it's a world that doesn't have problems. Everything's okay. It's not that. It's not turning your eyes away from the brokenness of the world, but in turning your eyes to the brokenness of the world, but doing so with the knowledge that our God is a bringer of peace in that we, as we strive to follow him and strive to bring his peace into the world, that we look like him, that we resemble him, that we are sons of our father, as it says in the verse. So just to take a deep breath and think about where we are here seven points in, we could kind of summarize this way. We could say that what Jesus is saying to us is he's saying that when you are his follower, when you are his disciple, that being like God, 
being in relation to God, being, you know, one who lives with the hope of the kingdom of God, these are the things that matter. These are the things where you're going to find happiness. Around and in your relationship to God, that's where happiness is going to come. You need to know that, Christian, because we live in a world that is going to offer us a different road to happiness, a different path to achieve what they call happiness, and it's a lie. The the world is offering us a false happiness that is going to seduce Christians by saying that happiness is found in you being you and you pursuing your heart and pursuing your feelings and taking on whatever kind of identity you want to. Really what the world is calling us to do in different ways in different cultures, the world is calling us to be the opposite of the person in the Beatitudes because the world is calling us to, you know, to, to be rich in spirit. The world is saying, get rid of all the things that make you mourn. You know, don't worry about any of that. The world says, don't be meek. Be, be the boss. Be in charge. The world says, hunger and thirst for stuff, for a better car, a better house. The world says, punish your enemies. The world says, put Christianity on the side. Look out for yourself. That's how you can become happy. And so here we are as Christians in 2023, and we have a danger. And the danger is that we're going to be tempted We're going to be enticed. We're going to be sucked in by this superficial, fake, chintzy, worldly kind of happiness. Or what happens sometimes is that here we are as Christians, but we get to this place where we're we're just kind of okay with not being happy at all. We sort of are here and and we say, you know what? The world's against us. They hate God. They hate Jesus, they hate the Bible, they, all these people, they don't respect us, they don't treat us well, we don't get what we deserve, so what else is there but to spend our days complaining and talking to each other about all the bad people and all the stuff they're doing, and see, when we get that way, what we're really saying is that we are the exception, that these things don't apply to us, we can look at the Bible and we know that there's dozens, if not hundreds of verses talking about the happiness that God provides to his people. But then we think, oh man, these Bible people, they didn't live in 2023. They didn't have to deal with rising rent prices and they didn't have to look at these long commutes and these evil bosses and these health problems. They didn't have the the pain and the suffering that I have. And what we really think is surely I am not expected to be happy, so I'm going to be unhappy. But then we get to Jesus' eighth point in verse 10. We could summarize like this. Jesus is really saying in verse 10, he's saying that you are happy even when people hurt Christians. Verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in the next verse. He says, you're happy even when people hate Christians. Because verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So these two verses, what they're showing us is that Jesus is not talking to people who live in a world where everything is just right. 
He's not talking to these Christians who live in this perfect situation where they're in this nice country where everyone's a Christian and all the laws correspond to biblical morality and people respect you for following Jesus and people are regularly coming to you and saying, please teach me the ways of the Lord. What must I do to be saved? He's not talking to people who live in this fantasy perfect world. He's talking to people who live in the same world you and I do. He's talking to people who live in a world where claiming to follow Jesus and belonging to a church and having a desire to obey scripture, that's going to get you hated. And that's going to get you excluded and maybe fired from your job or maybe lied about or maybe having your house taken unjustly. It's that kind of a world. And even more than that, he's talking to people who, who live in a world where following Jesus might get you hurt. It might get you put in jail. It might get you killed because of your belief in Jesus. That happens in the world, and he's talking to people like that. You know, some of you, many of you, have taken some of the classes at GTS. We always talk about hermeneutics and how are we going to study the Bible. And when we study hermeneutics, one of the things you want to look for is to say, what's being emphasized in a certain passage? Where is the focus? Where is, what, what is the biblical author trying to draw our attention towards? And one way to do that is repetition. And even Pastor Dave, I think, last week talked about repetition in the passage. And we've seen that in this passage, that we have this word happy or blessed that's repeated nine times. Okay, it's repeated. So whatever else this is, this is a passage about happiness, about the joyful demeanor of Jesus' followers. But we can say more. We can see even more emphasis on these last two Beatitudes in a couple different ways. First of all, they're at the end, and when we have a list of many different things, usually the final ones are where the attention is going. That's where the emphasis is. And the other thing we can see is that these last two Beatitudes are longer. If we look, for example, at one of the earlier Beatitudes, the one about peacemakers, in the original language, that's about seven words, whereas the eighth Beatitude is 12 words, and the ninth beatitude is 16 words. So these last beatitudes are about twice as long as the other ones. And then, of course, the other point of emphasis is that when we come to persecution, there's two different beatitudes about that, whereas everything else only gets one beatitude. So what's that all showing us? What it's showing us is that this, in verse 10 and 11, this is what Jesus has been building up to. This is what Jesus wants to emphasize in the whole section. And what that is, what he's drawing our attention to focus on is that this happiness that he's talking about, this, this happiness that, that, that distinguishes his disciples, this, we could say, this otherworldly happiness that comes from all these points, from bringing nothing to God and from expecting the end of grief and from living without control and from not most wanting what you need and not getting what you do. There's all this happiness that he's been talking about. What Jesus is emphasizing here at the end is that that happiness, it's still there when people hate Christians. And that happiness is still there when people hurt Christians. And I want you to see also the structure of these Beatitudes. As we go through nine Beatitudes, each of the nine has a statement about happiness, like, blessed are the meek. And then there's a reason for that statement, like, for they shall inherit the earth. They all have those same two parts. And notice for most of them, this second part, the reason, is in the future tense. So my Bible uses the words, they shall, shall. It's a future thing. They shall be. 
We're happy because of what we believe about the future, because of what God is going to do later, that we're anticipating the return of Christ. We're anticipating the kingdom of Christ. We're anticipating an eternity in the presence of Christ. And so seven out of the nine Beatitudes are pointing us towards that future reality of us being with Christ one day. But see this. For two of them, the first beatitude and the last beatitude, the bookends, if you will, for those two, the reason is not future, but it's present. It's about right now. And for both of those bookends, the reason is exactly the same one. It says this. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So guess what, Redeemer? This is true of you. This is you. That if you are in Christ, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what that means is that if you have come to Jesus with poverty of spirit, and if you have said, I am a sinner, I deserve God's judgment for my sin, only by Jesus dying in my place and taking my sin upon himself can I be saved. And if you have recognized that and turned to Jesus as your Savior and followed him as your Lord, if that's you, this is saying that Jesus is now your king that you live now as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, and that's not only a future hope, but that is a present reality in your life. And so what Jesus then is showing us is that for his disciples, your presence and your spirit and your demeanor and what you show to people in this world is marked much less by the circumstances of the world all around us day by day and all the news and all the entertainment and all the noise but we are marked much more by our identity, not our family identity, racial, sexual, national identity, but our eternal identity, that yours is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 10, 20, Jesus' disciples were excited. They'd gone out. They'd done some ministry. It was pretty successful. They came back. Here's a good report. Jesus says to them this. He says, you know, good news is great, but he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying that when things are going great, when everything's working in your life, and when you just got a promotion and your salary doubled, he's saying you're happy even more because you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then therefore, when things are going badly, and disaster strikes, and your health fails, and loss mounts, and the church is battered, Jesus is saying, that's still true. You can still be happy because you're still a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You see that? So he's here. He's he's teaching this to his disciples. We know one of his disciples, it's right here on his right right hand, is is Peter. The leader of the disciples, Peter, the, you know, the disciple that was kind of functioned then as the leader of the early church. Peter's there, right? He's with Jesus. He's hearing these things. And what happened after this? Well, Jesus goes on. Jesus keeps teaching. Jesus is persecuted. Peter witnesses Jesus being arrested, suffering, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, Peter goes out and for the next, you know, 30 years, Peter does ministry all around the world, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and Peter suffers a lot. Peter gets arrested multiple times. He gets thrown in jail. 
And eventually, as Jesus had predicted, he is martyred for following Jesus. He gets crucified, church tradition tells us, upside down as a follower of Jesus. And so after 30 years of a very hard ministry, 30 years after suffering a lot for Jesus Christ, let's see how Peter has internalized these lessons Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5. Turn with me for a minute to 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's Peter, 30 years later, 1 Peter 3, 14. He's talking to churches that are suffering and being persecuted, but look what he says, 1 Peter 3, 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You'll be happy. Even when you suffer, he knows that, he's seen that. Next chapter, chapter 4, verse 14 of 1 Peter. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter's saying, Jesus taught this and I've seen this. I know it. I know this happiness is the key. This happiness is real. This is a persistent happiness, a fearless happiness, a resilient happiness. It's a supernatural happiness that comes from the spirit of God. So back in Matthew 5, in the whole passage up to this point, there haven't been any commands as such, right? Jesus has been saying, here's the facts. Here's what's true. He's given us this nine-point sermon about the kind of people through whom he's going to change the world. But it's, he, he keeps saying, you are, not you do. This is what is currently true. But then, like the good Baptist preacher that Jesus is, He's going to wrap it up with a couple of points of application. And so once we get to verse 12, we see the first imperative verbs of the passage. There's two of them, and they repeat each other. Verse 12, here's what you got to do. Here's the application. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so to summarize... You're happy. He told us this nine times. You're happy, you're happy, you're happy, you're happy, you're happy, and so on. So then what should we do? What do we do as a result of that? And here's the to-do. It's be happy. You are happy, so be happy. We say, wait a second. What? What's he doing? You know, is this like a, a big circle of some kind? Has he lost track of where he is in his sermon? I don't think so. It's kind of like this. A while back... Uh, my wife and I went on a trip to, uh, to celebrate our anniversary. We went to this other country, and we had this big plan. It's going to be, you know, it's the 20th anniversary. It's going to be really exciting. We're going to have a good time. And so we saved up money, and we're ready to go on this trip. And we fly to this place, and the first day we're there, it's time to have dinner. So we're like, okay, we're having this, you know, anniversary trip. Let's have a good dinner at the restaurant. And so I said, okay, I've just got to go to the ATM and get the money out of the ATM, and then we can have dinner. And so I go to the ATM, I put in the code, and I say how much I want, and it gives me, like, bzzzed, error, like, no money. I'm like, what? Like, I thought I had money. Maybe it's an error. So then I try it all again. I take the card out, put the card in, put the code, bzzz, error, like, your card doesn't work. And so I think, okay, this is a bad ATM. I'm going to go to the next bank. So I go down the street, find a different bank, go to the other bank, put the ATM in. Guess what happened? Same thing, okay? It doesn't work. Error, I went to a third bank, same thing. Suddenly I realized I, something's wrong. I can't get any money. And so 
I had money, like in my account somewhere there was money, but then suddenly I'm saying, okay, well, I, we can't go to the nice restaurant we wanted to go to for dinner because we got no money, so we got to, here's a few coins in my pocket, we can go to McDonald's and split a french fry or something. It's like, I had money, but I wasn't able to use the money. I couldn't get at the money that was mine. And I think Jesus is saying something similar to that here. What he's saying is that, you know, this is a danger for his followers, that Jesus knows that his followers, even though they possess all of this happiness as kingdom citizens, just like me having plenty of money in my account, we, we have it, we own it, we possess it, but he understands that amidst this broken world that we live in, especially as we're going through hate and slander and opposition and persecution, Jesus knows that we are going to be tempted to live like unhappy people, even though to us belongs all the happiness of the kingdom of heaven. So we could say his application this way. We can, what Jesus is telling us, he's saying, wherever you go, whatever you do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Your happiness matters. That's what Jesus is saying here. And I think he puts it here. He puts it at the front end of the Sermon on the Mount. Because in this sermon, going through Matthew 7, he's going to talk about a bunch of things. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about lust and about divorce and about keeping the law. And I suppose if he didn't have this section here about happiness, we might think that if we just read this sermon and kind of obeyed all these commands and sort of, you know, weren't very angry and loved our enemies and weren't too lustful, if we kind of did our best on all of those things and eat, we might think that we're doing okay as Christians. We might think that we're living a healthy Christian life even if our faces are glum, even if what people hear from us is mostly grumbling and complaining, even if most days we're just muddling through, we might think that, okay, well, we just got to do the things. We're Christians. We're in church. We're okay. We're healthy. But Jesus front loads this teaching on happiness because he wants us to see that unhappy Christians are unhealthy Christians. That's the truth. So that's his exhortation. You gotta find that happiness, Redeemer Church. You have to prioritize happiness. You have to use happiness as a diagnostic tool in your life that will reveal to you your spiritual condition. And when you recognize its absence, you need to discover why it is absent and strive to find it again. You're saying, oh, okay, just, you're just saying kind of like forget about everything and smile. I'm saying, no, 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 Jesus is commanding you to rejoice. That's a command from our Savior, and for this command, there's no exemptions for, for pandemics or for, you know, for unemployment or for chronic illness. There's no, he's not saying this is true unless you're suffering in a big way or unless people don't like you. He's saying, no, 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 none of that compares to the joy that is set before you. This command Jesus gives us to rejoice is a command that applies to our very worst moments, which as he said, as we're suffering like he did, and therefore it's a command that applies also to our very best moments and every other moment as well. As kingdom citizens, we don't seek out opposition. We don't want opposition, but we do expect it. And Jesus is saying that when that opposition comes, the priority of his disciples is not to escape it, and it's not to fight it, and it's not to mock it, but our priority in opposition is to maintain our joy in Christ amidst it. Let's prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom.
That's Jesus' first application. Then to see his second and final application, I want to look at 13 to 16. As we go to these verses, just quickly, um, I know a guy, his name is Jim, and uh, he's, he calls himself a prepper. You ever heard this expression, prepper? It means he's really worried about the end of the world and that the, the government's going to collapse and society's going to fall apart and, um, and he's got to be ready for it. So he gets all this stuff. And so he's got a lot of food and he's got canned goods, you know, all in his basement. He's got all, enough beans to last from now until, the, you know, 20 years from now. And he's got fire starters and he's got knives and he's got tents and he's got just everything that you might need to survive no matter like what the zombies come or whatever happens. He's ready for it. So one of the things that he wants to be ready for is he thinks the banks are all going to fall apart. They're going to lose all the money. And so he says, here's how he's going to save his money. Instead of keeping it in the bank, which he doesn't trust, he's going to use his savings to buy gold. So he's bought all this gold with his savings, gold bars, you know, like a sizable amount of gold. But the problem with gold is you have to keep it somewhere. And so he's got gold, and he doesn't want someone to come and steal his gold, so he's hidden it. And the way he's hidden it in his house is he got these big buckets they usually use them for paint. And he got the gold, and he put the gold in the paint buckets. And then he thought, okay, how can I disguise the gold? And so he has a cat, and the cat has this special kitty litter that it uses for a toilet. And so my friend got all the kitty litter from the cat, and he put it on top of the gold in the bucket. And his theory is that if somebody, try, you know, if the thieves come in his house, they're going to look in this bucket and see, oh, here's all this disgusting cat stuff, and they're going to run away, and they're never going to find the gold. That's a strategy. And so I think of that when we come to 5, 13 through 16, because here we have Jesus using three different images. He talks about salt, about light, and about a city. Three different images all making the same point. And the point that he's making, the one point with these three pictures, is we could summarize it like this. Don't hide what you are. Don't hide what you are. Don't make your salt tasteless. Don't put your city in a valley. Don't put your light in a basket. Don't put your gold in the kitty litter. Don't hide what you are. And so that makes us ask the question, reading the passage, we say, well, okay, we're not, we shouldn't hide what we are, so what are we? And we read the passage and it says, we're happy. We're happy. He says it nine times. And so he said, be happy. Don't hide that happiness. He's telling us that as he has made us a happy people and commands us to walk in his happiness, our mission and our responsibility is to not hide that happiness. And so that makes us ask the question, what, what, what are we showing to the world? What is our demeanor? What is our presence? What is our aroma? What do people feel like when they interact with us? Because he's saying if we obey the command of verse 12, and we are walking with kingdom happiness through the difficulties of our life, that our very aroma, our very presence will be one of happiness. We will be the people who are contagiously happy, who are infectiously happy, who are memorably happy because it's so weird. It's so strange. It can't be explained. And people look at you and they say, now I know that, you know, your car just broke down. And I know that the politician you like didn't get elected. So why are you so happy? I can't understand it. I can't explain it. And Jesus is saying, exactly, this is a happiness that's here to be shared. 
So the application, we said, first of all, wherever you go, whatever they do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. We've got to find the happiness that we possess in Christ. But then the second application, we could say it this way, wherever you go, whatever they do, preach the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Proclaim that happiness. Show that happiness to the world because guess what? We are here to change the world. Jesus says it this way. He says in 5.16, he says, so that they, all this, all this happiness that we're showing, it is so that they, the world, may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We read this and we remember that we want the people of Dubai to be saved. We want the people of Abu Dhabi and Ajman and Sharjah and India and Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Philippines and Africa. And we want all those people everywhere in the world to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. We want people who don't know the good news of Jesus to hear it with clarity. We want the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And that is the great end to which we labor, to which we devote our lives and our ministries. And how that's going to happen, Jesus says in 516, that's going to happen when your light shines. And he says, we could say so shines, shines in a certain way. It shines in this way. It shines in the way that is not hidden. It is visible to the world. That's how the world's going to change. And there's certainly more to this light than happiness. This light's going to include all that's involved in showing the character of God to the world, all that's taught throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But this light is certainly not less than the happiness he's just mentioned nine times in a row. What our Lord is saying is that we are happy and that we are here to deliver happiness. We are ambassadors of joy. We are messengers of a new world. We are here to go into the world and to invite the world to a kingdom where there's no mourning and there's no sorrow and there's no suffering and there's no pain. We're calling the world to become servants of this king who loves them, who made them, who gave himself for them. We're inviting them to live with hope in him and to one day be in his presence, blameless and with great joy. And we can go to all the people of the world and call on them to say, hey, come away from this false happiness. You don't need to pursue those things you think will make your happiness because real joy can be found. Let me show you where. But that's a message that doesn't work when it seems like the messengers don't believe it. And so if our priorities are secular and if our hopes are material and our demeanor is embattled, our message might be life but what we are really delivering is death. We've been given gold and told to share it, but instead we're hiding it under the kitty litter where they can't find it. And when I speak the message of Christ without showing the happiness of Christ, I'm giving out a false message or at least a misleading message. Sometimes our Christianity can become so argumentative and all about the next battle and the next fight that we don't do a good job of communicating how good it is to be a Christian, how joyful and hopeful life can be when sins are forgiven and we're living within the boundaries that God has set for us, how fun marriage and family life can be when we're striving together to glorify God. How helpful and sustaining and joyful it can be to be living life as part of a faithful local church. Being a Christian often isn't easy, but it is so very happy. So Redeemer, let's go into all the nations and let's preach the gospel and make disciples of Jesus Christ, but let's obey Christ and do that as happy people 
who are showing and proclaiming the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Now here as we live in 2023, there's good news and bad news from this passage. The bad news is things don't seem to be getting any better. Our world doesn't seem to be becoming any friendlier to Christians. There seems to be every likelihood in the years to come that things might get even harder and opposition might even increase. But this passage also gives us some good news. And that good news that Jesus gives us is that it is precisely in the midst of persecution, precisely in those moments when happiness is least expected, that his disciples have the best opportunities to most clearly show the joys of the kingdom of heaven. Heather and I have a friend who a while back went through this horrible, horrible time in her life. Her friend was in an abusive marriage. Eventually, her husband walked away from her and their children. There was to be a divorce proceeding. And as part of this divorce, the court gave an order that said that she had to meet with this psychologist in order to assess her mental health. And so our friend didn't want to go to this meeting, but she was required to, so she went. And, you know, without quoting exactly the gist of what happened was, she shows up for this appointment, and the, and the doctor, who was from a different religion, the doctor says, okay, tell me about your situation. What's, what's going on? And so our friend decides that she's just going to use this time to share her testimony. So she starts talking about all this terrible suffering that she's experienced. But then she talks about how God used this to draw her closer to the church and closer to himself. With a smile on her face, she talks about her joy in the gospel and how her faith in Christ has sustained her through all this pain and all this suffering and all this loss. And so this meeting was supposed to be kind of the first of a whole series of several different meetings, but we get to the end of the hour and the, the non-Christian doctor kind of looks at her and says, you know what, you don't need to come back next week. He says, I, I can't really help you. And then he says, because I need what you have more than you need what I have. And friends, the world needs what we have. And so our mission is to go into this world as the light of Christ. And our strategy for that mission is the joy of Christ. Because ours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for his word. We thank you for the incredible realities of the kingdom of heaven in which we can participate and we can live this life with joy in the present and joy for the future because of what Jesus has done for us, because of this kingdom that he has called us to. So may we, as we go from here, may we represent that kingdom as ambassadors of joy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.